This is the Fertility Hour, where couples learn how to improve their fertility naturally. Join Charlene Lincoln as she interviews leading experts in the fields of natural fertility, holistic medicine, and preconception care. Fertility Hour is where you'll find evidence-based strategies, tips, and resources to help you when trying to conceive. And now, here's Charlene Lincoln. Welcome back to another episode of Fertility Hour. And uh, today we have Dr. Leah Hetchman from, where, where exactly in Australia are you from, Dr. Leah? In Sydney. In Sydney. Okay. Thank you so much. And um, so today our topic is endometriosis. And uh, Dr. Leah is um, working on her PhD studying the effects of endometriosis. Um, well, maybe you can be more specific about that, but um, she's, she's an expert in this subject. So I am looking forward to picking your brain about this. Um, Leah is an experienced and respected clinician who specializes in fertility, pregnancy, and reproductive health for men and women. She has completed extensive advanced training as a university lecturer, keynote speaker, author, and educator to her peers. She is also a regular media spokesperson for her profession. Leah leads by example, remembering to live life to the fullest and believes that ill health is merely a stepping stone to help you reclaim your true state of being. Welcome, Dr. Leah. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So uh, Dr. Eva Keen, who uh, I partner with and who's part of the Natural Fertility Prescription, speaks so glowingly of you. And um, so once I started kind of looking at your work, I was like, oh my gosh, this woman is brilliant and compassionate and has helped so many people in this, um, I think it's safe to say, a, a pretty complex uh, medical condition that's affecting so many people. So, uh, I, you know, I took some time, I was listening to a previous interview where you were studying, uh, where someone was asking you, why isn't there more research on uh, endometriosis? And you were just discussing um, challenges in study recruitment. And you were saying that you were finding that almost every woman has some endometriosis these days. Can you discuss that a little bit further? Yeah, absolutely. Just to give the background for the listeners. So we're, we're looking at study recruitment for one of the studies that I'm doing at the moment, and we're trying to get a control group. And if you look at women between the ages of say 25 and 40, how are you going to make sure that they don't have endometriosis without doing a laparoscopy? And we're at the point where the control group is really not exactly a control group because it's highly probable that the statistics are suggesting that almost all of them will have some mild endo. And the theories around that are that we're all having kids much later. So is endometriosis actually just a reproductive homeostatic mechanism in a way? Because we're having kids later, we're not exercising our uterus the way that we used to, you know, when we were having kids at 18, 19, 20, 21. And a woman that delays having her kids still in her late 30s the uterus hasn't been exercised in the same way. So the peritoneal fluid, the fluid that surrounds the uterus and obviously the whole abdominal area, um, hasn't had the opportunity to change itself. And, and there's lots of theories around it. I think it's quite interesting scientifically. Clinically, it's, it's alarming, um, but scientifically, it's very interesting. 
um, obviously, I mean, I had my kids late in life. I'm, I'm not against it, but I think we need to think about our women in a different context because of that. Okay. And now, are there still women getting misdiagnosed at this point or are oh, all practitioners? They are. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. Absolutely. Why is that? I mean, I still have the horror stories of the women coming in going, um, you know, and, and they run me through their symptoms and mm. it's everything you can imagine. And they're just been told to have hot packs and Panadol, uh, pain relief of some description and just, you know, suck it up, you'll be fine. And then they get told the miraculous comment of just have kids, you'll be fine once you've had kids, which we, we now know is just rubbish. Um, and, you know, I guess it's unfortunate because the laparoscopy is the gold standard. So obviously we want to delay surgical intervention for as long as possible. But I don't think that women are listened to I don't think that the severity of endometriosis is acknowledged. Um, you know, there are certainly lots of um, jokes around the medical community about, you know, if a male had endometriosis, what would they be like? And the reality is, is that men would not leave home and they would not do anything. Mm. Um, cost impact worldwide to, of endometriosis to women is enormous and it far exceeds conditions like diabetes, but the research isn't there and the medical acceptance and the medical acknowledgement of it isn't always there as well. Mm, wow, that's impactful that it far exceeds diabetes. Um, when you put it in that scope, what, really it isn't acknowledged, is it? No. Um, so, I mean, when, when women are going to their practitioners and they are describing a set of symptoms, is the diagnosis of endometriosis um, coming up or is it, yes, you might have endometriosis, but just deal with it with the, you know, over the counter, you know, prescription type of thing. I, that's what, that's what I'm understanding. Do they know, do they think, oh, this woman possibly has this, but she needs to just deal that, that part's confusing for me. Sorry. I think there's a bit of both. So I think there's a lot of, oh, look, you're a woman, you have period pain, deal with it. And you've yeah. got IBS as opposed to you've got digestive symptoms because you have endo and you just have lots of urinary tract infections and you have thrush. So you just have lots of things, mm. but they're not actually endometriosis and suck it up. Or you have the, yeah, you probably have endo, but if you have babies, it'll get rid of it. I see. I see. So um, I'm thinking a, a woman, a woman listening today um, and she has not been diagnosed with it, but she has IBS. She has, like you said, thrush, painful periods, things like that. Um, I hope that kind of, you know, puts that light bulb in her head to explore that further, that diagnosis. Um, yeah. Because as you say, it could be all segmented. You have five different things and, and, and not knowing that it's all related to yeah. endo. Okay. Um, let's discuss endometriosis, endometriosis and fertility. I mean, the fact is women with endometriosis, endometriosis can and do get pregnant, but what are the concerns, the limitations, you know, where do they just, you know, where's, where is it where they only can do IVF to get pregnant and some practical advice around that? Look, it's all about the staging and the grading of the, of the endometriosis. And I look at it as well as, you know, the multi-systemic involvement. So, you know, you can have a woman, I guess, let me just backtrack. You can have a woman that has minimal pain, but severe endometriosis. So she doesn't even really realize what's happened. Mm -hmm. And she can take a very long time to conceive. 
and then IVF ends up being her only option because, you know, the IVF is right through her reproductive cavity to the point where, you know, her ovulation ability gets compromised um, or other variables. Or you can have a woman where her pain is significant, but the endometriosis is mild. And that's where endo is not clear. Um, you know, and when you look at the research and, the, and they talk about, you know, the pain awareness and the pain perception of endo women, it's, there's not a direct correlation. You know, there's not a direct, you have distinct pain, so you have distinct endo. And some of it relates to the neurological fiber involvement, the severity of it, your genetics, you know, lots of other variables will influence it. So it's very tricky for us to go, okay, you have endo, you have infertility. It's not exactly that clear. The unfortunate thing is, you know, if you have a laparoscopy, there is a definitive diagnosis, but then there's the recovery from the laparoscopy. And so mm -hmm. endo women are more prone to developing adhesions, which is abnormal scar formation, which then grows endo. So mm -hmm. you want to discourage the laparoscopy as much as you can, but obviously in some situations it is needed. Um, and so, you know, once you have the diagnosis and they have their clean out, as they lovingly put it, you know, where they have the surgical scraping and everything, they do have increased fertility. So there's, there's benefit to it in some situations. But, you know, to bring it back exactly to your question, um, it's, it's just one of those situations where we have to investigate thoroughly and we have to ask lots of questions and really understand each individual woman to understand her fertility impact. Okay. So, um, you know, you're discussing uh, laparoscopy. That's the gold standard as far as diagnosis. Uh, is that the only diagnostic tool that's used? Um, look, I think it comes down to clinical skill. And this is not to big note myself. It's just, you know, over 20 years of practice, you get good at it. I can pretty much always work out who has endo and their severity um, based on a lot of clinical questioning. So it's, you know, going through all the systems and asking, you know, the things we talked about, you know, the UTIs, the thrush, the painful intercourse, um, you know, and the painful intercourse based on deep penetration or friction. Um, the women, they get hot flushes before they have a period. The women that get, you know, all sorts of progesterone insufficiency signs before, like major PMS because their balance of hormones is out. That's a really clear diagnostic. Certainly in Australia, and I know around the world, but the terminology is different, but in Australia, we do an advanced um, ultrasound with a bowel prep. So you do a normal women's specialized sonography ultrasound where it's internal and on the abdomen, but they also do a bowel prep. So you do like a bowel flush, like you're having a colonoscopy and they have specialized, um, specialized equipment that they can detect the endometriosis a lot more carefully. Um, physical examination by a gynecologist can sometimes diagnose it depending on where it is. Um, there are certainly some blood parameters. Um, a controversial one is a CA125, which is technically a cancer antigen marker, but it is a marker of reproductive inflammation. So if you have a woman who has an ultrasound that's inconclusive, but an elevated CA125, absolutely she's going to have endo. But if she has an ultrasound that has, for example, a fibroid, or a growth of some description and an elevated CA125, it could just be related to the fibroid. But, you know, if a woman has a CA125 and it's high, I always know that there's reproductive inflammation. So it, it pretty much guarantees it for me that it will be there. Um, other diagnostics, you're starting to get into more functional screening. So um, you can look at um, various immune markers and cytokines and things like that, and it can give you clues. But the others are the, are the, the better diagnostics. Okay, thank you for that. 
Um, okay, thank you for that. Um, let's discuss uh, the link between poor thyroid, thyroid function and endo. Is there a link and does poor thyroid function trigger endo or is there no direct correlation? The thing with the thyroid gland that I always respect is it's incredibly rare to have the thyroid function be poor as a primary. The thyroid underfunction or overfunction is usually a secondary response of the body to something else. And so because it's one of the glands for the endocrine system, the endocrine system has this very clever ability that when one is out, the other goes out. So if someone has poor thyroid function, they probably have reproductive imbalance of some description or if they have reproductive imbalance, it will affect the thyroid. Um, additionally to that, you know, the iodine, which we know is the building block for two of the main thyroid hormones, is also very heavily required by the ovaries for ovulation and very heavily required for optimal uterine function. So there is a direct link in that regard. Um, but women that have endo, because of the level of inflammation in their body, they tend to start pushing all of their other endocrine glands out you know, be it their adrenals or their pancreas or their thyroid, there's just like a domino effect that tends to occur, unfortunately. So um, I see it all the time. And it may not be, you know, full-blown underactive thyroid. It might just be subclinical underactive thyroid because the thyroid has to overwork to assist in some of the other regulatory roles. Um once you find, I mean, I, w I would assume always the thyroid, like you said, it's always going to be affected. But it, so is that a, a very important part of the treatment is to get that thyroid back in balance? It's not my primary thing that I address. Because for me, if the thyroid is correlated with it, unless they present, you know, like if a woman presents and she's got Hashimoto's thyroiditis and, you know, she's on a thyroxine um, or equivalent, um, you know, in that situation, the thyroid is a definitive condition in its own right. If not, if I fix the endo, I'll fix the other, you know, irregularities in the thyroid just by treating the endo. Okay. And just for our listeners in the US, you, you had said iodine, but you have a very, um, you have a very nice accent and you said it in some other way, just so if people are like, I don't know what she said, it, it was iodine in the ovaries. Sorry. No, don't apologize. Just, I wanted to clarify that. Um, in a previous interview, you discussed, you discussed diagnosing and treating bugs as part of the endo treatment. Please explain Please explain that and what are bugs, virus, viruses, parasites, or please specify. So with this, it's, it's certainly an area of clinical practice that I've changed how I support my endo women. You know, so if you saw me 10 years ago, my endo treatment is very different to how it is now. And what I'm realizing more and more is that I think that endo is, as I've mentioned, a multisystemic disorder. I don't think it's just gynecological anymore. I think it is the interplay between the reproductive system and the immune system. And that interface of that interplay directly occurs in the peritoneal fluid. So the peritoneal fluid for our listeners is the fluid that surrounds all of your abdominal area. So it's the fluid that washes over your digestive organs, your reproductive organs, your bladder, et cetera. And that peritoneal fluid contains very important components of your immune system. And if the peritoneal fluid itself has any imbalance, it causes disease and disharmony. And we now know that endometriosis travels and is developed by imbalances in the peritoneal fluid. So what I now understand as well is that the peritoneal fluid can harbor infections. And it can also be a response to an infection that might be in the digestive system or that might be in the bladder 
that may then aggravate or amplify or cause the endometriosis. And so what I'm realizing now is that, you know, system-wide um, infections, be it viruses, bacteria, parasites, whatever, are exacerbating and sometimes causing the endometriosis. So what I'm doing now with women is investigating their immune response a lot more intensely. Um, and that, that test that I alluded to earlier, that cytokine panel, looking at specific cytokines, which for listeners is basically just looking at the immune system in a very detailed manner. And I'm looking at it and seeing imbalances or fluctuations in those levels can be quite a diagnostic tool for me to go, okay, that person is actually dealing with a parasite or that person is dealing with an underlying virus. That's where my treatment needs to focus. And by restabilizing the immune system, I can pretty much always get endometriosis under control now. Mm, okay. Um, it gets very complicated and very detailed the more yeah, I go. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Yeah. But I, I think because you have that deeper understanding and have looked at it, I mean, is that becoming um, more and more common that practitioners in the functional world are looking at endo as a systemic condition versus just a reproductive condition or what's the um, landscape? Uh, look, it depends on where you're looking, you know, and if I speak to any of my colleagues, there are certainly a lot of people that are still looking at it purely reproductively. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that the, the research around the benefit, let's say, of probiotics, yeah, and so the understanding of the microbiome within the uterus and, and the influence of that, I think, has been accepted for a lot longer. But I think that the leap into the infective trigger, I don't think is that widely accepted yet. You know, it's the holy grail of research where research has been trying to identify the exact change in the immune system that causes endo. And I don't think that there is one change because, you know, I can show you a hundred papers that show all sorts of different cytokine abnormalities, but it's not all exactly the same. But what I do know is that there is a cytokine abnormality and each person will show me an individual um, translation of that and development of that. How is functional medicine or maybe, I guess, I mean, you are an individual in functional medicine. Maybe how, how do you... Um, uh, assess it and treat it versus, I guess, when someone goes to just a conventional practitioner? So, I mean, if, if, you know, the first port of call would be that a person would see their gynecologist and the gynecologist management is still pretty much all pain relief, symptomatic relief and hormonal manipulation. So, you know, they'll say, go on the contraceptive pill, go have the progesterone secreting IED, the marina, Um, And then they start, you know, escalating the interventions of prostaglandins and, you know, various steroids and and different things in that regard. But it's all about recognising that endometriosis has a direct correlation with oestrogen. And it's about regulating that oestrogen, which absolutely still occurs. But when you go deeper into it, the oestrogen itself feeds the bugs. And so there's this lovely dance between elevated levels of estrogen or increased levels of estrogen concentrated in the reproductive area, which is endo, increasing the immune response, increasing the the bug proliferation, which increases a histamine reaction in the body, which is again, another immune reaction, which increases the estrogen. And it just goes round and Mm. round circles. So the conventional gynecologist looks at it purely in the estrogen context. But what I would encourage people to do is look at the immune and the reproductive at the same time because I think that you miss things otherwise, you know, like a patient I saw yesterday who unfortunately is now at the place where she's had 
both of her tubes removed. She only has IVF as an option. She's a 40 year old woman that's been trying to have a baby for over nine years now. And, you know, the only relief of her endo has been when she's been on the pill or the marina. And she's now at this point where she's like, well, I want a baby. Um, I'm going to need to do IVF. You know, what do I do in all those situations? And that medical model of suppressing her hormones is not an option because she wants a baby. Um, and so that's where the other areas actually get a lot more, a lot more supportive. They're not just blocking it. I was going to say for our audience who are trying to conceive, I mean, obviously what you're talking about going to a gynecologist being put on an IUD or, or birth control pills, that's not, that's not, not going to work. Right. No, uh -huh. so then all they end up doing is giving them pain relief management, surgical intervention to remove the endometriosis, but it doesn't change the why is the endometriosis there. So they have the surgery and then it's back within one to two months. And then they're back at square one or worse because they've got adhesions, that scar tissue formation development from the surgical incision. And then they're just in this horrible cycle of, well, how many surgeries can we have without ruining our uterus and preventing implantation? And they're just stuck. They're just stuck in a horrible cycle. And then unfortunately, a lot of these women get to the point where they go, I'm just not going to have kids because my quality of life is so poor. So I'll stay on the pill or I'll have a hysterectomy. And that's what this 40 year old woman yesterday was told. She was told get pregnant as quickly as you can and then have a hysterectomy. How is that a solution? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it's just so drastic. And look, I mean, if someone is reaches that point, absolutely. I respect it. And I understand the difficulty around making that decision, but surely there has to be something else. The body's too clever. It doesn't say just remove an organ. I would imagine a woman at 40 who's had endometriosis for many, many years. I mean, it's going to affect that overall success of the IVF procedure. And so yes. saying that, I mean, it, I think it's, it's quite cruel. Um, it's, it's horrible, but there are other options. And that's why, you know, doing a talk like this is great. And, you know, the message that you guys are getting out there is great because there are other options and there are other ways that women can help themselves. It's not just about that. And please don't misunderstand me. You know, gynecologists are brilliant and I have enormous yes. respect. Um, it's just that that's, that's their toolkit. That's what they've got. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, obviously it's not to just disrespect anyone in the medical profession. It's just, I know in the United States, people kind of have hit a wall. Um, we have... Um, you know, as far as like a, acute trauma type care, I mean, we have superior medicine, but, but chronic illnesses, um, there's, there's a deficiency. I mean, and that's where people are searching out naturopathic physicians, people who are practicing integrative medicine. I mean, and we wouldn't need all these different types of practices if the conventional model was working in these type of conditions. It's just, mm -hmm. um, it's just not the reality. Now, this is interesting. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I, I, I hope I'm not incorrect, but I, I think it was a colleague of yours in the doctorate program who was looking at um, causative factors of endometriosis and um, started looking at high prevalence of sexual trauma in women who have endo. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that if you can. What yeah, were the numbers on that? It was quite high, it seemed. It was over 80%. Okay. That which okay. is huge, huge. Look, I mean, when you look at that, and then when you look at the first statement, which is that it's probable that most women have some endo, it can't be 100% of women have sexual trauma, okay? Yeah. Um, you know, but 
I do think that it's pretty much everyone that I've ever worked with that has come in with severe endo has had some, some situation of some sort of sexual trauma, some scripture. Um, I've never met anyone that hasn't. I find that alarming, concerning, scary, you know, all of that. Um, but the research around it is very conclusive. And I don't know what I make of it. You know, I'm very connected to the concept of mind-body medicine as well. And the idea that, you know, our body stores traumas and stores emotions and everything. Um, you know, there's certainly a correlation, you know, on a physical level with the bug exposure from sexual contact. You know, and we know that, you know, sexual contact with a partner that is consensual, but not necessarily enjoyed or not fully consensual, your chance of getting STIs and all that sort of stuff is going to be greater. Um, your chance of having a reaction against it is greater. We know of the emotional links with thrush and self-hatred and self-anger as being there. Um, you know, the question is there, is endo correlated with some sort of challenge of sexual expression? Is it correlated with some traumas around it or some um, blocks that women experience? I think it's something to think about. You know, there's, there's definitely trauma around having endo and having trauma when you're experiencing sex because it's painful. You know, is that part of it? I don't know. I don't know. I think it's something that women, if they're open to it, should look at and certainly discuss it with someone, you know, the trauma that a, a woman, you know, again, I was talking with another patient yesterday, any of the assessments that a woman experiences has absolutely no semblance of sexual pleasure, you know, compared to a male going through the trauma of a semen analysis, for example, that's where the conversation was. But a woman, you know, it's a very vulnerable thing to go through all the investigations and the surgeries and the ultrasounds and all that sort of stuff. Um, it can exacerbate a woman's experience and she can express that through her reproductive organs. You know, I just wanted to um, kind of, I, I guess, clarify further, because if someone was listening and they said, well, I've never been, I haven't experienced sexual trauma. I mean, I guess we should define it a little more. It's, it's any time that sex has felt unsafe, right? It's a perception of being violated. I mean, it doesn't have to be rape or, you know, where someone was molested as a child. Um, there's a lot of gradients of sexual trauma. So. Yeah. Absolutely. But certainly as well, you know, the most severe endo patients I've ever worked with have all had major childhood sexual trauma, but that doesn't mean that that's a diagnostic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, right. Um, estrogen, uh, estrogen dominance is shown to be a factor. And you said that you don't know, you were talking about the thyroid, that you're not focusing on that, but how do you work with estrogen dominance? Um, is it progesterone supplementation or kind of what's your... Um, tools and strategies around that? Um, just a little caveat. I don't call it estrogen dominance because I look at it as though it's estrogen loving because you can certainly have women who have, um, like a, a, you tend to have two types of women. So you'll have the women that are very thin and don't have a lot of body fat on them, but they can still have endo, but they wouldn't be classed as an estrogen dominant person mm -hmm. versus a woman who has a lot of curves and a lot of, you know, enlarged breasts, hips, that sort of thing. And she would look visibly as though she has more estrogen dominance. In both situations, I see it as, you know, how much estrogen the body concentrates and where they displace it to. So you can have, you know, like a jar full of estrogen and you can have 75% of it in the uterus and that be the exacerbation of endo, or you can have 150% of the jar and have too much estrogen. I think there are various versions of it, but I tend to see more that um, it's very directly related to a woman's weight 
So, you know, if, if a woman has any extra body fat on her, she is storing more estrogen, which tends to exacerbate how much estrogen is systemically. Um, the treatment for both is similar but different. Um, so the thinner woman, you need to move the estrogen around the body as opposed to stop the estrogen. And the other woman that certainly has more weight on her, she doesn't have to be obese or anything, just, you know, a few kilos um, or pounds. She, um, she certainly needs to move the estrogen, but she needs to get her body fat percentage under control because otherwise she's got this estrogen that's constantly feeding things. Um, I think the, the most important for both women, though, is to avoid exposure to synthetic estrogens, so environmental pollutants, plastics, so all the phthalates and plastics, to avoid exposure to um, heavy metals and things like that because they tend to exacerbate it. And then there's the controversial soy debate. And so what I tell women is to remove soy from their diet and then we can test it later on because soy being a phytoestrogen and a very powerful phytoestrogen, I don't want them to add more estrogen to the fire, be it a natural one or a synthetic one or a plant-based one. I don't want them to add any more to it. So I do spend a lot of time talking with women about environmental exposures and where they come from. And, and that's the whole detox process. How, how do you know where estrogen is concentrated? Is that through the, like a saliva test versus a blood serum test or how would you know that it, it was primarily concentrated in the uterus or? Yeah. So look, the saliva and blood piece, I'll get to in two seconds if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. In endo women, it's concentrated in the uterus because that's where the endometriosis is. Okay. It's just, where is the endo? So if it's around their bowel or their bladder, then you know that estrogen is concentrated around there. And certainly across the board, you know that the estrogen is concentrated in the peritoneal fluid. And then with the saliva and the blood, they're not very good diagnostics for estrogen status. You know, blood is really only a few percent of what's circulating at the time. It's certainly not the, the bulk of the, the estrogen in the body. Saliva, um, you can certainly get the fractions of estrogen. So look at how it's converting into its different forms, which I find helpful. Um, you can do urine tests to look at um, how the estrogen is converting and if there are elevated levels as well. Um, I tend to not use the test so much because I prioritise others and then I'm just looking at cost balancing for people. But if people are comfortable to, yeah, it's interesting. But my, my discerning variable is always, does it change my treatment? And it doesn't. So if mm. I see, you know, if I do an estrogen fraction, um, you know, in saliva, is it going to change how I treat the other? Um, okay, I'm just, this is going to be edited out, but do you hear my dog barking in the background? That was not mine. Okay, because my, my, we're, we're having a holiday here. My five-year-old is downstairs. Um, and so, no, no, not a problem. I just want to, um, I'm going to pause the recording for a second and somehow make that uh, stop. And uh, I'll be right back. Sorry about that. Okay. All right, I'm back. Anyways, the dark side of working from home. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. We are talking about estrogen dominance. Um, <laughs> oh, goodness. What, what types of foods uh, exacerbate uh, endo? You're talking about soy, obviously, is something that needs to be avoided. And... Yeah. Look, I find dairy from A1 milk is probably one of the most concerning. So A2 milk, where the 
the KC molecule is a little bit different. The A2 milk, I don't find it as problematic, but A1 milk, I do. Um, I do find that the more vegan a woman is, the better it is. It doesn't mean everyone has to be vegan, but I do find that dairy in particular causes an enormous amount of increase in inflammation. Meat tends to aggravate some women, but it depends if they get lovely organic meat that hasn't had hormones and different things, they tend to be better to respond on it. Um, some women do react to gluten. There's a lot of conclusive data around there looking at gluten and its, um, and its role, but it's not something that I take every woman off. And also um, sugar tends to aggravate. But I think that the sugar involvement correlates directly with the immune system. So if they have too much sugar, then obviously they're exacerbating things just by you know, inflaming the virulence of the bug. Sugar never helps, I guess, is the conclusive, yeah. You know, that doesn't really help anyone. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, you know, the, you were mentioning the A1 and A2. I'm not familiar. I mean, you were saying a smaller casein molecule, but uh, is that something yeah. in, in Sydney that you can find at the store? I, I'm not seeing that same. I, I might have, but it's not common. It's not that common. It is hard uh-huh. to get, but you can get it in the States. Um, in Europe, they don't have to worry about it. So it's looking at the type of cow that produces the milk. Mm-hmm. So all European cows are A2 milk. So this is where I can have a patient that can have um, Italian cheese or French cheese um, and they're fine, but they react to Australian cheese. So it's the difference between a Frisian and a Jersey cow. In the States, you have a lot of A2 milk naturally. Um, Mm -hmm. So it depends on where you are. But I think it's just about getting people to have a look where they are in the world and, and what their access is. But in Europe, they have nothing to worry about at all. Um, but it's it's just very interesting research looking at, you know, the different type of cow because, um, you know, certainly in Australia, you know, they brought out the wrong type. <laughs> and so then now that they've tried to replace it and the level of inflammation in the body is quite different. And so we're just looking at the protein component within the milk and the difference between the breed of cow and how that impacts things. Okay. Um, kind of going back to the estrogen question, uh, you know, Oh, you, you were saying that you don't focus on, you know, estrogen per se, but what about, just wanted to kind of ask a, a secondary question about the low estrogen. So it's not really, you say you don't like to call it estrogen dominance. Did you say, it, it, was that term estrogen loving? Was that the, how you said it? Displacement. Oh, displacement. I'm sorry. I was like, oh, that's a kind of a cute estrogen loving. <laughs> That sounds like warm and fuzzy versus dominant. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So, but um, just to kind of follow follow up with that, but it's not, um, but you can also have low estrogen as well um, in in endos. Of estrogen? Like you can have a blood test and have low levels. Is that what you mean? Yes. Absolutely. And and this is where it's a total head mess for women because, you Mm -hmm. know, they'll get a blood test and it will come back. And even if they go through an IVF cycle sometimes as well, the estrogen doesn't pick up that well, but they have endo. And they're like, well, how does this work? Um, And really it's just looking at it that the blood levels aren't a very good reflection and all that estrogen is concentrated in the areas where the endo is. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you can go online and... um, find quite a bit of information about endo and there's dietary recommendations and herb recommendations and everything else. Is there kind of a safe general herb that you can recommend to people and feel, okay, I'm pretty much everyone with endo can use this and it'll help with the inflammation, et cetera. Is there, is there anything? 
I think dietary forms of herbs, absolutely. Because when you're getting into, let's say, capsules or extracts and things like that, they're uh-huh. getting very concentrated and people might have, um, you know, medication that they're taking and there might be an involvement. But I think, you know, dietary uh, ginger and dietary turmeric are phenomenal. The research around turmeric and its role as an immune modulator, um, as an anti-inflammatory agent, as an antioxidant is astounding. And women could just, um, you know, they can make themselves those turmeric lattes where they slice up some fresh turmeric and have some almond milk and some cinnamon in it and sliced ginger. or And that way they get the fat from the milk and so they absorb it more readily. But I, I try and encourage women to have, you know, like a heap teaspoon of powdered organic turmeric every day whether or not they have it in a glass of water or they put it in a latte or they put it um you know they make a dal or they put it on their roasted veggies however they can get it in it's very powerful at really relieving a lot of symptoms um everyone feels better from it it's a very simple easy thing people could do there's a little bit of um I guess misconception about turmeric. I mean, turmeric is used by many cultures and it's supposed to be a very powerful herb, but there are some herb companies that say that the bioavailability of food, of turmeric as a food, by the time it goes through the digestive system, very little actually reaches where you need it to. Because I've used um, like turmeric type capsules for pain relief in my practice, but, um, and I was, you know, people are like, I, I eat it. And I was like, oh, I don't know if that, you get enough of it that way. Yeah, what, what's definitely. your you don't get as much as you would in a capsule. Absolutely. I mean, the capsules are, you know, extracting a particular phytochemical, the plant chemical and concentrating it, you know, to the equivalent of eating, you know, like a kilo of a root sometimes. Mm. You're not going to get to that level, but you're certainly not going to do any harm. And provided that you have the dietary turmeric, it's organic. So, you know, there's no pesticides and things that you're competing with and you have it with some form of fat, your ability to absorb it and use it is much more efficient. Um, but it's, it's definitely not going to be as effective as a concentrated capsule by any stretch. Okay. Um, so like I was saying, you know, there's, there's a lot of articles about endo and I, I know people are just frustrated. They go to their conventional doctors or whoever they're seeing and they feel like they're still really suffering. So I, I, I don't fault anyone for going, oh, you know, this article says to take maca, be propolis, systemic enzyme therapy, pignogenol, uh, progesterone cream, uh, dim, maybe I need to do some biofeedback, or maybe I can just do the whole lot and just kind of bombard my body. I mean, is there any issue with that of, of self-treating or say you have like stage one endo and you're just trying to do some natural therapies on yourself? Is there, is there kind of blind spots to, to self-administering treatment and herbs and things like that? I think you can make a real mess. Okay. So, I mean, if you're just a stage one endo, tidy up your diet you know, make it really clean, tidy up your environment, you know, get rid of all of the exposure to different things that will exacerbate your endo. Stop using tampons, you know, like start Mm -hmm. using sanitary pads or menstrual cups, you know, just to reduce the chemical exposure that's going into your vagina. Um, You know, just start making some changes and very mild endo, you can really turn around quite quickly. Um, Because if you start taking DIM, for example, and you're only mild endo, you're going to make a huge mess. You're going to push yourself into menopausal types of symptoms, depending on the dose that you take. And, you know, the average person, they genuinely want to help themselves, but, Mm -hmm. you know, too much of something, it can really make a big mess. A lot of people are allergic to bee pollen. A lot of people have reactions to propolis. A lot of people, you know, if they start doing progesterone creams, there's a reason why progesterone is not accessible 
around the world as readily as it is in the States because you can make a really big mess. Um, I think it's important that with something like endo, you recognise the, the impact of a condition like this and you seek some assistance from someone that knows what they're doing. I think do all the dietary and lifestyle stuff that you can on your own and you'll be surprised how much improvement you'll make. It's slower, but you will definitely make improvement. But, you know, taking all those other things, I think you can make a real mess. Okay, thanks for clarifying that. Um, thoughts on, you know, have you, have you received uh, patient feedback on um, using things like meditation, biofeedback, et cetera, making a difference in, in dealing with this condition? I definitely do. Um, I think that, you know, giving yourself the skills and the tools for pain management is vital. Um, you know, like I, any of my endo women, when they do go through labor, they always say to me, you know, look, the endo taught me I can do labor with no drugs. I'm fine. That was mm -hmm. nothing, you know, like, so I think that the, the self-talk and helping themselves work through their pain when they do experience it is very, very powerful, but also their mindset because, you know, a part of endo that no one really talks about is the emotional impact, both from experiencing it, you know, the, the debility to your life and the pain and things like that, but also the chemical changes that occur from endo in your brain. It's very depressing, you know, to have that much estrogen in your uterus can make women feel like they're going through menopause, you know, like they can experience all the dryness and the low libido and the lack of life, uh, you know, enthusiasm and all that sort of stuff. And so they kind of don't know what's going on. They, they get very introverted and very reclusive and no one validates it. And so, you know, the meditation and the positive self-talk and the, you know, empowering yourself internally is very powerful and very important. You describe women with endo as brave. Very. Yeah, very. I think they're the bravest women out there. And I think that the women that have endo, again, you know, like they go through childbirth and it's a blip because what mm. they go through on a daily basis is phenomenal. And I really hope that, you know, by doing talks like this, that we get the message out there that their experience is as dramatic, as impactful as, as all of the very long-term chronic conditions. And it needs to be understood a lot more. There needs to be a lot more research in this area and women need to be respected a lot more because their experience and their quality of life is very poor. You know, a very severe endo patient has very poor quality of life. And I think we need to be a lot more compassionate. How can people find out more about you? They can go to the website. Um, so oh. there's a lot of information there. There's a lot of articles. The website is naturalhealthfertility.com. Um, so there's a lot more there. You know, there's all the social media things as well, if they want to have a look at all that. Um, but there's, there's heaps on the website. Okay, great. And um, kind of the foundational tip you gave was the number one thing is the diet, correct? Is, is, there, is there anything, and, and you were talking about like using turmeric in your diet. Um, is, is there anything else, um, kind of like a practical tip, you know, that, somewhat generally that you could um, leave us with? Oh, no, absolutely. Um, I think the first thing is about, you know, women feeling that they have more control with their body so that they have strategies in place to help them manage their pain, you know, be it using heat packs. You know, there are those fantastic things that you can get from, I think we get them from Korea here. Um, they're these stickers. They're like literally like a hot pack that they can put on mm -hmm. their belly. Sticker. Um, having things like that at their disposal so that they're not at the mercy of pain relief medications. You know, 
I remember when I was early, you know, 12, 13 years of age, I had an accident with peppermint oil and I realized that peppermint oil, if you apply it to your belly, the essential oil acts like a hot water bottle and relieves the nausea and relieves a lot of the digestive symptoms of endo. Um, you know, little practical things like that can make all the difference because it makes them feel like they have strategies to manage it. And, you know, really seeing their body as giving them signs, you know, it's out of balance, it's inflamed, it's not happy, eat well, you know, like nourish your body, listen to it. If all your body feels like it can manage that day is soups and broths and stews and slow cooked foods, then that's what you need to do. You know, don't force it into a perceived diet that you should be eating because that's what's healthy. Eat what your body is telling you at once, you know, have the dialogue there and really nourish it. And the biggest thing that women need to really focus on is moving the blood because it, you know, the TCM language, which I know you're very well versed in, um, you know, the blood stagnancy component should never be underestimated because if we get the blood moving in the reproductive area through, you know, diaphragmatic breathing, through exercise, through heat applications, through blood moving foods and herbs like the turmeric and the ginger and cinnamon, um, it displaces and moves everything really, really beautifully. And it's a very empowering thing that women can do on their own. You know, they're having a bad endo day. As much as they want to sit and feel position in the corner, try and move your body if you can. Have a hot shower. Have a heat application. Use the essential oils. Move the blood through your body and it will relieve a lot of the discomfort. Thank you. That was so helpful. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Leah. And um, I just, you know, I have so much gratitude for what you're doing and helping so many women. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you for your time as well. Of course. Thank you. All right. Have the re wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. And uh, if you liked what you heard today, we have um, so much more wonderful content. Please subscribe. And, um, and can I ask you, can we have a part two at some point? Love to. Um, okay, great. Because I know you're so knowledgeable. I'd love to um, uh, pick your brain on another subject. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Leah. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Hour. For being one of our loyal listeners, we would like to give you free access to a special report called Restore Your Fertility Naturally. Inside, you'll learn about an eight-step, all-natural process that's helped hundreds of couples conceive. This is one of our most popular reports, and you can get free access by going to fertilityhour.com forward slash report. Again, that's fertilityhour.com forward slash report. Go there now, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Fertility Hour.